Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. And it actually is a really good morning. So it's a, it's a great weather, great day to be in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for coming to the Heritage Foundation. And if I sound excited, it's because I am really excited. I don't, there are few things more important than the fate of the transatlantic community, and not just for the freedom, prosperity, and security of the, the uh, tens of millions of people that live, hundreds of millions of people that live in the transatlantic community, but really for the future of the world. The, the transatlantic community is the linchpin holding the, the peace and security of the globe together. So there's never been a more important time to talk about the way forward together. And so we are excited with the Reagan Institute to sponsor this series of bringing over prominent European voices to really help us think about what, what the future holds and what the vision is. So to, um, uh, to kick this off, I'm going to turn over my patriot here. So I'm Jim Carafano. I oversee the foreign security policy here at the Heritage Foundation, and my partner in crime is Roger Zackheim. So Roger is the director of uh, the Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to impose upon Roger not just to talk about the series and what our goal is, but also talk a bit about what you guys do and, and how you fit in. And it is such a natural and important collaboration for Heritage and the Reagan Institute to work together. As many of you know, um, Heritage was founded in the early 1970s, and we were present at the creation of the Reagan administration, um, uh, famously uh, provided the mandate for leadership, many of the ideas that were foundational to Reagan's defense and security policy. So, um, you know, his legacy is incredibly important to us, and we believe it is incredibly relevant to the world we live in today. So to work with the Reagan Institute to talk about how the past could really inform the future is just such an honor for us. So Roger is, as many of you know, uh, was on the House Armed Services Committee, Armed Services, right, Committee for many years. He was in, in the private sector for a number of years. Um, he was actually very rom- prominent with the Romney campaign when we were, thought we might have a president <laughs> then. But so, um, and he's part, and this, and, you know, and, and, and his dad's not here, but many of you know Dove Zach. I'm in Roger is Dove's son, and this is, um, Dove not only has an incredibly distinguished service to this country in so many jobs, but he was really good at rearing children and uh, <laughs> and produced uh, you know the, the the next generation of great leaders. So um, Roger's been a great friend for many years. His work is so incredibly important, and so it's just an honor to have him here today. So I'm, let me let me turn the forum over to you, and then we'll get started. Thank you, Jim. Well, Jim, that's a that's a great introduction, and uh, my father thanks you for that shout out. Um, <laughs> And I've uh, kept the family tradition. We've produced uh, five Zachheims, so he likes me because we've given him five grandchildren. Um, it's an honor to be here, and it's, it's fantastic to see so many friends in the room. 
uh, and particularly, I'm super grateful to, to Jim Carafano, who's been uh, just an ideal colleague and, and supporter of the, the Reagan Institute uh, and what we're doing in D.C. As many of you know, the Reagan Institute is the D.C. office of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation Institute out in Simi Valley, California, which I encourage you all to visit at some point next time you're in L.A. It's, it's just an hour north of, of Los Angeles. And the mission of, of the Presidential Library in California is to preserve and promote uh, the legacy of our 40th president, President Reagan. And um, you go out there and they have fantastic museum and library and archives. Uh, but our trustees, as, as Jim referenced, uh, wanted to do more to promote the legacy of, of President Reagan. They felt to do that and to promote his legacy really meant we had to be in Washington talking about President Reagan's ideals, values, and beliefs. And so that's what we do at the Reagan Institute. And what's wonderful about that opportunity and that mission is that we are not alone, that the Reagan Institute actually is really standing on the shoulders of great public policy entities like the Heritage Foundation that have been fighting the good fight, promoting President Reagan's ideals, values, and beliefs for decades now. And whether it's Jim Carafano or General Meese or anybody else here in the Heritage Foundation, they have been doing that great work. And it's an opportunity, a great opportunity for us to be able to collaborate together now. Uh, and, and from that, I'll transition to what we're collaborating on today. Um, as all of you know, uh, the INF Treaty was a signature arms control accomplishment of President Reagan, uh, negotiated with Mikhail Gorbachev, signed in 1987. It was what you received when you had a president who was true to his convictions, wasn't willing to give up, in this case, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which of course are the, uh, the resulted to our missile defense systems today, um, but yet demonstrated that arms control could play a constructive role in security in Europe and globally. And here we are, you know, decades later, and Russia has violated the INF Treaty. And the Trump administration has said, as a result of that conduct, we, the United States, should no longer be a party to that treaty. And it's not just the United States, but our allies, too. We have come together, the United States and our NATO allies, and said that because of Russia's violations, the INF Treaty is no longer serving its purpose. And we don't do this lightly, and we don't do this unilaterally. And the Trump administration has been very clear about this, and so have our allies, including one such ally represented today, uh, Lithuania's Minister of Defense. And before I introduce our distinguished guest, I just want to note really the terms that President Reagan used that was necessary for achieving the INF Treaty. And for that, I want to go back to an earlier summit, the Reykjavik Summit, which many of you know, which took place in 1986. And it was there that Mikhail Gorbachev offered, put on the table to remove all nuclear weapons, provided that President Reagan agreed to kill the Strategic Defense Initiative. And President Reagan famously had what's now called the Reykjavik Moment. He left. Why? It wasn't just about one missile defense program, or in this case, the Strategic Defense Initiative. It was because in President Reagan's view that if he didn't have SDI, that meant he was giving up on two things that he refused to negotiate away. And those two things were 
our freedom, and our future. In other words, in President Reagan's mind, an INF treaty or any other arms control treaty would not serve its purpose if it threatened our freedom and our future. And so the way I look and the way we look at the decision because of Russia's violations of the INF treaty to leave that treaty is because it, know, it put our freedom and our future at risk. And therefore, it's no longer serving its intended purpose. And so with this series, with the Heritage Foundation, the Reagan Institute, we are looking to demonstrate that this decision is not a unilateral decision. It's one that's done in concert with our allies and it poses important questions about what the future of transatlantic security will look like in the days, months, and years ahead after the INF Treaty. We agree that the INF Treaty uh, is a thing of the past. The question is, what does the future look like? And there are important policy questions that need to be raised and discussed. And so it's my honor to introduce the Minister of Defense from the Republic of Lithuania, Minister Karoblis. Uh, he's had a distinguished career. Uh, formerly, before this role, was Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs. He's also been the permanent representative of Lithuania to the European Union, the deputy permanent representative to the European Union before that. Uh, he is a great uh, ally, a great friend, a friend of the Reagan Foundation, is someone who absolutely uh, understands, internalizes, and promotes uh, those values that President Reagan uh, espoused decades ago. So without further ado, we look forward to hearing the remarks from the minister. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, thank you, both presidents, for the really nice introduction. And it's a great pleasure to participate here and to speak in this inaugural session on transatlantic security after INF Treaty. Indeed, uh, things were developing uh, extremely fast on the front of uh, over the past months, and the EU administration has been acting very decisively in response to Russia's violation, and with very good reasons. And here really should be underlined that these reasons are very clear and it was the only possibility to, to act in this way. In Europe, as could, can you imagine, the INF is a highly sensitive subject. The memories of massive protests in the 1980s against uh, the deployment of U.S. missiles are still alive, and it may take some time before all Europeans fully come to terms with the demise of the INF Treaty. On the other hand, uh, it would be very hard to argue against the logic of the U.S. position. I totally agree that we should not let Russia get away with this treaty violation and yet another treaty violation. And instead, the United States and Europe should face the challenge together by building coherent political and military responses. NATO has just started its work uh, on countermeasures after issuing a joint declaration on the INF in December. And therefore, I find our debate today very pertinent and very 
timely. Uh, let me start from the broader perspective. Yes, and uh, of course, uh, uh, having in mind that uh, really, I would like to refer to Senator Tom Cotton, who was here to spoke uh, about the Indo-Pacific region after the NF Treaty, which and it provided very solid analysis. He provided very solid analysis on, on the wide aspects of the INF. Indeed, with, with, with China and growing number of regional contenders developing intermediate range uh, missiles, plus, of course, Russia is cheating. There is hardly any justification for us to continue living, uh, living under the INF Treaty constraints. But for us, for, for Lithuania, of course, the main issue is Russia. Uh, the NF Treaty was a product of its times. It is uh, indeed a symbol of a bygone moment in history. Uh, at the time of signing of uh, the INF Treaty in 1987, as it was mentioned, the world has high polar dominated by two superpowers. Europe was at the epicenter of the global competition, but the Soviet Union was in rapid uh, decline under combined pressure of its flavored political and economic model, as well as, as, well as military overstretch in Afghanistan. Moscow's situation was further aggravated by the fall of oil prices in the uh, 80s. Gorbachev understood uh, the gravity of the situation better than most of his commanders in the Soviet leadership. He started withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan, held a series of bilateral meetings with President Reagan, and tried to improve the functioning of, of the Soviet model through notorious uh, perestroika and uh, glasnost policies. On the military side, uh, unable to keep up in the arms race, the Soviets were ready for de-escalation. All key arms control agreements and confidence-building measures in Europe, like INF, like CFE, Vienna document, have their roots in the late 1980s. I very well remember this time uh, the restoration of independence of my country, Lithuania, is also very much the product of these times. At the moment of signing of the INF Treaty, Lithuania National Liberation Movement, Sides was rapidly gaining strength. It ultimately became the leading force in the process of disintegration of the Soviet Empire in 1990. And, of course, Lithuanians always, will always uh, remember the support uh, of the United States regarding our case of independence, starting from the non-recognition of the annexation of Lithuania by Soviets, and, of course, finally, by the accession, support of the accession and NATO, and, of course, support in the uh, present security situation. Unfortunately, the collapse of the Soviet Empire provides no cause for celebration to Mr. Putin. On the contrary, in his uh, world uh, view, it was the greatest geopolitical 
tragedy and first of all geopolitical tragedy escape of the Baltic countries from the influence of Russia. And those post-Cold War changes in Europe, uh, we in Lithuania rejoice, such as the fall of the Berlin Wall or our accession to the European Union and NATO. This uh, are perceived in Kremlin as the story of Russia's post-Cold War humiliation. Over the past decade, we all were witnessed uh, of the, what Putin's longing for Soviet glory days means in practice. We saw Russia repeatedly violating international law, breaching its international commitments, grabbing territory of its neighbors, using chemical and radioactive weapons on the streets in foreign countries. Given this pattern of behavior, the discovery of the SSC-8 missiles and Russian cheating on its commitments should not really surprise anyone. What is important? It is to understand the reasons why Russia has decided to secretly develop and deploy INF-prohibited missiles. In our view, intermediate-range, dual-capable missiles provide Russia with a flexible set of strategic options to dominate any military conflict in Europe. The SSC-8 missile, as part of Russia's strategic arsenal, is designated for major military conflict with NATO. The estimated range of the missile, which is 2,000 uh, kilometers, covers almost entire European continent, except maybe Portugal. In our assessment, these missiles are designated to conduct conventional precision strikes against NATO's critical infrastructure and command centers, if, if necessary, in tandem with nuclear blackmail. From what we could observe at the Russian military exercises, Zapad and other, nuclear forces are fully integrated into Russia's military planning. They are not a weapon of last resort. They are considered integral part of Russia's war fighting options. And even uh, speaking about the same Zapad, Zapad 2017, the final steps of these exercises were nuclear strikes and simulation of that using all triads of Russia's nuclear capabilities. In political strategic terms, Russia's approach integrates the strategic operational effect of conventional precision strike with the deterrent and uh, coercive effect of nuclear capabilities. In training, non-nuclear strategic weapons are employed instrumentally at the early stages of crisis or conflict, while nuclear options are reserved for escalation dominance at the final, so-called de-escalatory phase. Also, Russia demonstrates a strategy to prevail in local and regional uh, conflicts by threatening a full-fledged world war, including with nuclear weapons. In the Russian documentary dedicated 
to the annexation of Crimea. Putin himself uh, said that the or that he ordered nuclear forces to be on high alert during this operation, just in case the West decides to intervene. Well, and uh, from that we see that there are no safe heavens, in particular in Europe. The deployment of medium-range missiles means that almost all NATO allies in Europe are within Russia's striking distance. This makes the distinction between NATO's frontline states and those who are at a safe distance somewhat artificial. There is no safe distance or strategic depth in, uh, left in Europe. All countries are vulnerable to Russia's conventional and nuclear missile strikes. This uh, equally, however, should not provide any comfort to Russia's neighbors. The medium Range missiles are there primarily to undermine collective defense, the core function of, of NATO. These missiles will pose danger to Allied reinforcements long before they arrive to the theater of operations. This is the major implication of Russian medium-range missiles. This aspect will require special attention from NATO military planners. Last but not least, by its dual-capable missiles and demonstrated readiness to escalate, Russia is creating psychological effect even before the start of crisis or conflict. Russia is signaling to its adversaries that it is always prepared to move the hostilities beyond the acceptable level, as they calling. Thus, Russia's SSC-8 missiles are there to target our minds, our will to fight, as well as NATO's ability to take decisions at the time of crisis. How should we respond? Finding and, and fielding military responses to the Russian breach of the INF will pose a complex and highly demanded set of challenges. As a first step, NATO will have to reassess its vulnerabilities and reevaluate its defense plans in the light of Russian medium-range missile capabilities. Significant investments may be needed to harden NATO's critical infrastructure. Restoring missile parity with Russia on the European theater also looks like a natural step in answering Russian violations. Not NATO pursued its dual track policy, deployment of uh, missiles and negotiation towards the Soviet Union in the 1980s. It will have to be considered again once the United States has reintroduced medium range missiles capability into its arsenal. Due to political considerations, options of deploying medium-range missiles to Europe would have to be approached with care and as a collective decision by NATO. It involves additional risks. Risk sharing should become an integral part of burden sharing within the alliance. The issue may be highly divisive both within Europe and between Europe of, and the United States 
Given all the sensitivities involved, it would be wise for NATO to start discussing missile deployment options well in advance. It would be naive to expect Russia to sit while the, uh, and wait uh, while the West is getting its act together. Uh, populist parties are gaining ground in uh, quite a lot of European countries, and uh, even financial support from Russia is, is, is provided. For them, this is a highly worried trend, which will present another test to our unity vis-a-vis -vis Russia. NATO also needs to enhance its theater missile defensive uh, capabilities. These uh, defenses uh, will never be sufficient to eliminate the Russian uh, missile threat, but even limited missile defense could narrow Russian options of flexible use of its dual-capable missiles. Last but not least, NATO has to review its defense and deterrence posture on, on the eastern flank. As mentioned before, the Russian SSC-8 missile will present major threat to Allied reinforcements in the Baltics. We need, therefore, more and better prepared forces stationed in the region. The size and combat readiness of NATO's enhanced forward presence battle groups should be improved. They should become truly combined armed forces to include the full set of combat, combat support, and combat service support units. Immediately, available firepower and rapid decision-making of the essence to avoid fair accompli in the Baltics. Last but not least, there is no better way to deter Russian adventurism that placing a U.S. combat union in the Baltic states. The United States is doing a lot to support security of our countries, but as we speak, there is no continuous U.S. military presence in the Baltics. Ambassador Vershbo and General Bridlow, in their recent publication on permanent deterrence, have provided a very argued case for larger military deployment in the Baltic countries and Poland. They also call for stronger U.S. maritime presence in the Baltic Sea to achieve and maintain sea control. I hope the insights and conclusions will be taken into account by U.S. policy makers and military planners. And, uh, well, now it's time for conclusions. And here I will say that we are still at the very early stages of reassessing all the implications of the post-INF era. Uh, era. There can be no easy or risk-free answers when facing an adversary who is technologically advanced, who is determined to undermine the post-Cold post War order in, in Europe, and who is taking advantage of the openness and pluralism of our democratic societies. This makes transatlantic unity and joint actions even more important. Addressing these threats will also require firm U.S. leadership in the defense of our democratic values against aggressive autocrats who are on the rise in different parts of the world. 
Once again, I really thank the Heritage Foundation for providing this opportunities, the opportunity to share our views and concerns, and hope that these debates will help uh, both the U.S. and the European allies. And as a result of, of these debates, these actions, we will get more more clarity in the direction for the benefit of the both the United States and European partners. Thank you very much indeed. Minister, uh, <clears throat> thank you so much for those remarks, and um, uh, very much appreciate this very straightforward set of, of views and with the clarity that at times when you discuss issues like arms control uh, and, and force presence, oftentimes people try to be ambiguous and not clearly state what's needed, and more equally important, what the, what the threats and challenges are. So I have a few questions just to tease out some of the uh, points you made in your remarks, and then we'll open up to the group here for some questions as well and make sure we let you go on time so you, so you can hit your next set of appointments in Washington. Um, the, the biggest challenge that you hear in the U.S. Uh, following the uh, Trump administration's announcement that it, that it will suspend its obligations under the, under the INF is that the United States is acting unilaterally, that somehow this was a decision that was made without cooperation and consultation with allies. Uh, didn't get any of that from your remarks. It seemed to be that this is a, a viewpoint where the alliance is united. But would you take us through your perspective of how the alliance is viewing um, the United States' decision uh, to suspend its obligations uh, under the INF as a result of uh, a Russian noncompliance and violation? Uh, well, I think that uh, it's... Uh as it was step as it was made already, so the withdrawal from the INF treaty or notification about that, it was with the consent of all NATO allies. So it's not uh, unilateral. Yes, it was unilateral initiative, having in mind that the agreement is technically between the United States and Russia. But of course, uh, so it should be consulted with NATO partners, and finally it, it, it was done. And what we have, it's, it's that uh, the decision was, 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 was made and support was made very, very clear, and, and it's, uh, it was a uh, unilateral decision. So it's without any doubts. But uh, the question is also discussing with, with German partners. There are German partners in particular, but also others in Europe. So the problem is that uh, societies in Europe did not realize that we live in the new security situation. And uh, simply it's time to take out the, the, the rosy glasses and look to the real realities. And if one side of the very important agreement is just, it's absolutely violating that, it's simply there are no ways that to react from other side. And the, the, the last option, but probably in this situation, not probably, but, but definitely having in mind the the position of, of, of the present Kremlin's regime, so it was not possible to have any options than the uh, initiate the withdrawal from, from, from the treaty. Of course, giving the option of the six months, which is necessary to sit and try for negotiations, but it seems in this situation, well, we know all Russia and what, what it did during the last uh, few years, of course. Right. So the allies, in your judgment, um, 
understand that Russia's violated and, and, and well, regarding violations, is, there are no any doubts. At all the also intelligence of the European countries also confirm that. So it is very clear that, 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 that Russia is violating the treaties. There is no division, of course, between, between NATO member states. The only question is for some countries how to sell it to the new, to the, to, to their societies. Because in your remarks, you're very clear that, I think your words were, there are no safe havens in Europe and there are no safe and there's no safe distance within Europe. Um, given that, how do you deter? What do we need to do to deter? Some of the points you made in your speech hint to that, but can you deter Russia uh, from the type of behavior that you outlined in your speech? Well, first of all, it's uh, actually from the military point, tactical point, I uh, really would not uh, elaborate, and uh, this is the question of the militaries and, of course, so the, the specialists which are, which are dealing with tactics. But, well, first of all, politically, the main response is the new, new unity, what we are demonstrating. Other aspects, yes, we really go about specific countermeasures. Uh, well, another issue is, is also that, uh, yes, it's uh, maybe unpopular in the societies in general, of course, that we are moving from this arms control specific regime, but, but if there is no chances, it's naturally so the option that other countries, country which other side which is not violating the treaty, but of course to get this uh, parity, of course, should have the, the, the possibility to develop the, the, the weapon it, it itself as, of course, uh, the deterrence measure. But, of course, other measures also should be discussed and must be discussed in, in, in NATO, like strengthening of, of missile defense. Of course, we, Lithuania, are raising the issue of general air defense of the uh, alliance in, in Europe, uh, stressing the aspects and, and uh, necessary to do in particular in the most uh, risky, risky areas, but now we have another issue of, 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 of which is which is missile defense, and of course other specific measures also are possible, and really we need to find the variety of, of, of measures from the military point of view. So I want to get to the uh, missile defense in the um, foreign presence in, in a moment, but just going back to the to the issue of this process following the notification. We have a six-month period. Um, some allies would like to use that time to see if we can get the Russians back uh, to negotiating table uh, and see if give arms control one last chance. From your remarks, you don't seem optimistic that that would result in anything. Um, but you also reference that you would like to see um, missiles deployed in Europe. Um, of course, the United States is uh, is based on this latest budget request, and the testimony is, is looking at that. Do you foresee uh, uh, the alliance embracing uh, Glickums, for example, and other uh, uh, cruise missiles or mi uh, uh, ground-launched cruise missiles in Europe in order uh, to uh, deter Russia uh, in this post-INF uh, period? Well, regarding the six, uh, six months uh, period, yes, some countries at least uh, we're calling, of course, to have to sit for the negotiations. Uh, yeah, we, we are not optimistic about that, having in mind that uh, we think that we know Russia quite, quite well. And during the years, we were called as, as, as para paranoid raising the issue, but 
Unfortunately, it seems that we history, were right. History yes, makes right. you paranoid, yes. right? But and recent history too. So indeed, this is about that. But really, about the specific measures, including deployment of of, of U.S. missiles in, in in Europe, it's it's yes, it's one of the of the options. But I think that the main issue which we need it's first of all really the the, the military conclusions by that, and it's really necessary. And second, is it's uh, probably even more important from political stance of view. So it should be uh, consent and full agreement uh, by, by 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 all NATO NATO partners. Yeah, and just just to follow up on that, where do you think NATO, the alliance, is in that discussion? How far kind of away is there from a consensus on that question? It's really beginning uh, the, the the beginning stage, of course, which we have, and, and uh, well, there are issues, including uh, so this this mindset of the societies. It's not easy to sell uh, so in Europe, but on the other hand, looking from the military point of view, so the the nuclear is the asset of NATO. In any case, it's NATO capability, and, and of course. Really, so this, 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 uh, well, has in, in, in all cases at least uh, military have in mind that and militaries. And, uh, well, of course, the different scenarios are elaborated. So it's really uh, for, for militaries, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it was done in maybe earlier in the theoretical way. Now it's it was the new realities. Is the question about the uh, of course, uh, deployment on the deployment, uh, so the, the weapons uh, in Europe, and, and, and secondly, secondly it's, it's about other measures regarding uh, so related with, with, with nukes, but uh, countermeasures, countermeasures, for example. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, it's uh, not, abs- we can't say that it's an absolutely new issue mm-hmm. as such. And we're talking conventional primarily. Well, so conventional, that, yes, but also the, the, the nuclear is also the, the weapon of capability of NATO. Changes, just shifting to a different piece of this equation. Um, Germany reported last week, coming news out of, out of Berlin, was that they did not intend to meet uh, their uh, stated uh, commitment on, on uh, defense spending. Of course, uh, Lithuania has a previous public remarks, uh, intends to reach 2.5% GDP, uh, I believe, by 2030. Um, Talk to us about the commitment to defense spending and its impact on, in your mind, on on the alliance and, of course, uh, deterring uh, Russian aggression. Well, uh, I think that U.S. position that uh, all NATO countries should should meet 2% target at least by 2024 is, is, is really right. And while we very much understand and support this, this position, it's, it's really about that. And we have very clear progress on that by, by NATO members. Lithuania reached 2% from GDP last year, so practically increasing defense expenditure more than 2.5 times compared with the levels of, of 2012. 
And uh, yeah, finally, we got the support from the society that will need to, to build up our capabilities. And it's not only because of this uh, target of NATO, but, but also because of, of that uh, understanding that we really need to develop the capabilities for ourselves. And ten years ago, we had the, the, the song that uh, the, defense will, the NATO will defend us. And uh, NATO will defend us, but we realized that only we will be prepared ourselves to defend ourselves. And we, we have our, our our society. Yes, regarding Germany and others, they have internal political problems, let's say, or not problems, but 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 of course the the, the, the coalition and there are different views. But in any case, case it's necessary to to to, to move forward. But uh, yeah, also I participated in in several of of, of conferences, occasions with with Germans. Some of them, they are raising the issue, why should uh, we reach this, this 2% and even more? So how Americans, why Americans are pressing us? It's not intelligent at, at all uh, and, and, and similar. But really my question was that, uh, that all NATO allies made the, the, the decision to reach 2% by 2024. It was those decisions. And it's, it's about implementation of the commitments. If I'm not mistaken, so by contractual law, if you have problems with the contractual obligations, so, well, you, you, you are asking the, your partners to, to, to sit and to find the ways how to and in which terms you will, you will implement your commitment. This is about that. So really, we are also looking what is happening in, in, in Germany, and I very much expect that at least this uh, minimum, according to the uh, Chancellor's Merkel opinion, 1.5, will be reached. On the other hand, uh, so it's, it's a really gradual process, and, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's impossible to change also the mindset during over the night. And good example is that what Germany is doing in in in, in Lithuania, leading the the enhanced NATO, uh, enhanced forward present battalion, and Bundeswehr is, is building uh, its 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 capabilities. Uh, Germany increasing investment to the in, in the military infrastructure in Lithuania. It's also first time. So yes, since uh, during the in the modern history. And, uh, of course, by these concrete examples, we expect that uh, Germany also will undertake uh, more responsibilities for the security in Europe also. As you know, the, the Trump administration, the president, has, has, has raised concerns about the quote-unquote free rider problem, that the United States uh, spends a disproportionate amount of its own resources for European security, for NATO security. Um, the Reagan Institute conducted a poll uh, last uh, after the midterm elections last year, and uh, the findings were, were interesting. Uh, on the one hand, there was overwhelming support across Republicans and Democrats of NATO, of the importance of the alliance. On the other hand, overwhelming view amongst Republicans and Democrats that NATO allies need to do more uh, to pay their fair share. Do you think that's a reasonable view coming from not just the administration, but from Americans? Yes, it's absolutely a reasonable view, but uh, so, and uh, it's, it's a reasonable view indeed, and that uh, really, so this, this, this balance should be uh, of, of uh, present uh, uh, defense spending, of course, in NATO should, should be, uh, well, that all countries, it's natural that all countries should, should seek this, this 2%, and uh, 
well in this time during last two years i think quite a lot was done and and it quite, quite it was quite significant increase of defense spending by by, by europe and i think it's a good sign another side of the coin is that it's not only about uh, expenditure but it's also building the capabilities and efficiency of course of this defense spending and 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 uh, really uh, the, the progress is, is, is also here and also we need to to find uh, so the ways uh, moving forward in Europe, starting from, of course, uh, maybe so facilitation of the uh, European defence uh, industries, of course, no, in non-discriminatory way compared with the partners, including in the United States. But but really, it's also about that. And secondly, such initiatives as, for example, military mobility, which is necessary in Europe, starting from infrastructure and then border crossing procedures, so also we, we need to use uh, these possibilities. And then from the, on the other side, of course, uh, so really this is uh, need to use alliance for, 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 for Europe, is it so, its primary role, but also European as are in, in all uh, major other places, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Syria, well, Lithuania, as it's being small countries, but small country, but we participate in 11 foreign operations, of course, with different uh, size, starting from Afghanistan, Iraq, Mediterranean, of course, but uh, also with Ukraine, in, uh, in Ukraine, where we are, the, 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 on all areas, we are partners with the United States and, and others, well, other allies. A couple more questions, and then we'll open up to the to the audience. Um, you talk about industrial cooperation as well as obviously the military cooperation. Comment a bit in terms of uh, uh, the industrial cooperation, defense industrial cooperation between the United States and Lithuania. Uh, how is that working? What capabilities are you focusing on, and 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 and, and are you getting those capabilities from from your U.S. Uh, friends? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, be about uh, so the cooperation between on the in, in industrial uh, defense in, in, in Europe. And really, we, in my view, we need to be, Europe must continue its, 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 its openness, but listening rhetorics and actions. Sometimes they are divergent views, but, but really we need the openness and to promote the defense industry cooperation within all alliance. And uh, our, there is a very high level of integration between uh, NATO countries' uh, industry, including the partners. For example, Lithuania now is buying in and refighting vehicles. It's it's European plat platform, uh, German platform boxers, but the torn is from Israel and uh, uh, so the the cannon and and uh, so radio equipment is is of the United States. The same with NASAMS. So the missiles are from the United States, and the launchers are joint project of 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 Norway and 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 US. So they are good examples. Regarding us, yes, we are buying from uh, United States. It's one of our main partners. Starting, we started from javelins, now JLTVs uh, and general munition. We are looking for the new project. And looking to the to the investment which we have from uh, uh, so it's from the United States. Now it's the figures are equal the amount of investments we're receiving on the, for military purposes, 
and under procurement. So it means that practically the same amount, not speaking already of the increased level of the security, but we are, so the all money as uh, are going back to, 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 to United that States. Comes in, and according, according to our plans, actually, we intend that it, it, it could double even, actually. To the to the to the to the side of 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 of, of uh, so procurement from the United States, so I think that this cooperation which we have maybe the scale compared with other partners is 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 not very big yes but 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 definitely it's it's absolutely win-win situation quality. Um, last question quality. before we open up to to, to the audience. Uh, I'm going to move from defense industrial base to what the national security strategy refers to as the innovation base, the national security innovation base. And, um, and of course, Europe right now is, is wrestling with an issue of how to deal um, with its security infrastructure and whether or not uh, Huawei uh, should be able to compete and, and have its products uh, uh, in, in, in European countries, European capitals, of our, um, and U.S. allies. Uh, you have previously stated that Lithuania uh, will not rely on Huawei products. Obviously, there's a significant administration effort to convince other allies to do the same. Comment on uh, how Europe is, and they are both from an EU and a NATO perspective, is, is looking at this issue and, and how you or Lithuania concluded that it would not rely on Huawei products. Uh, well, it's, Europe uh, did not make the decision yet, and, and it's, it's, it's the issue and this is the challenge. And of course, we need to, to find the joint the decision both in NATO and also in the European Union. And uh, while from time to time we, we see the controversial signals from our partners in, in, in Europe, uh, but uh, really we need to have a common decision. Uh, yes, uh, we very much understand, so you US uh, remarks and signals that if, if the Chinese technologies uh, or technologies of other third countries would be would be used, we could have the problems with, with exchange of intelligence information, as well of, of course, uh, the, the questions of the of the of the command and control and uh, information uh, assets. Uh, so, with the presence of American troops in Europe, it is it is clear. But uh, here, really, we need to find uh, an, an adequate decision, and I think that it's it's really would be the the best option would be if we could find the the, the, the decision on the on the level of, of alliance. If not, so really we need to go for the alternatives. And and uh, well uh, in that maybe if we uh, use let's say for civil purpose uh, of course Chinese for the military uh, so ally production, so of course it will be not probably efficient from the investment point of view so but but uh, really if we do not manage uh, process collectively so maybe we would need to go for this for this for the civilian security support. Yeah. Hard, hard to do certainly it's hard to do and not and not not efficient all right yeah but regarding 5g so it's really the future we are elaborating the system uh, now but really we don't know exactly which kind of products will be will be used we don't have such projects in general so really we need to to look uh, well what will be the perspectives of the of the development and for for which purposes we we will use but definitely so it's the decisions we really we will need to make very quickly and well all hopes are for for nato and the european union from us. all right well let's open up for questions thank you for for, for that great conversation um let's go over here to the left 
better. Um, sir, your country understands Russia very well, uh, sometimes I think better than the United States in general. Uh, what can we expect um, once, new, once the INF Treaty goes away? What can we expect from Russia? Well, the situation is that 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 Russia is is very very difficult to make estimations about Russia's behavior, and the problem is that well, well, Russia was 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 quicker speaking about about Crimea and also about the events in Syria, so it's it's very difficult to have these estimations. But so I I would. Uh, it's, it's really we are not speaking about the, the war or etc. So we are speaking about, of course, uh, so that uh, so the news the situation that the, the cheating from Russian side was discovered. Of course, Russia will have more possibilities to to, to invest more to this 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 uh, nuclear capabilities, but uh, no no major changes probably from from this side. On the other hand, we should be in mind that that uh, so it's, it's INF is an F. It's it's uh, really the uh, the binding treaty which was and Russia did not implement it. But Russia is also has it uh, tactical uh, nuclear weapons, of course, which was immediate threat from for 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 us. So I do not see that that uh, it's INF uh, from so this this uh, uh, denunciation of INF it should have the military consequences. It's more about about political consequences. The consequences from 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 NATO lie that really it could could make uh, countermeasures and uh, the possibility to have the parity here as the deterrence measure. So I mean, from a military standpoint, I understand you saying we've already seen the change in Russian behavior. They've just been exposed now. <laughs> Absolutely. What they've been doing. Uh, another question. Uh, gentleman in the WAC, way back. Hello, uh, Mike Webb from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, very, very important as an intermediary step uh, in terms of deterrence to have a metric that you can measure 2% uh, of GDP. I was wondering in terms of follow-on, in terms of actually developing a uh, capability uh, to respond to aggression in terms of intelligence collection capability and also a, uh, a credible uh, response force? Well, of course, uh, so it's not about, it's definitely the 2% the, the is not only about uh, the, the fin only financement as such, but also about the capabilities. And, uh, well, we have other uh, benchmarks, which is 30% should be allocated for the for the for the modernization of armed forces and, and uh, definitely looking to the priorities, intelligence capabilities. It's not about the the, the the conventional, but also the investments to the intelligence capabilities and the investments to cyber investments, of course, uh, to the uh, artificial intelligence and, and and also so definitely so it's about the. The, the, the quality and, and about real capabilities as well as others. And, and also it's not only about money, but, but, but uh, so about the initiatives 
and uncommon uh, actions of the countries and the initiative of the early warning and indicators is also an improvement of the intelligence cooperation and sharing. It's one of the areas which we really need to, to work more and, and, and really continue to reach adequate results. We'll go last question. We're a couple minutes over. Last question over here, sir. Thank you. Preston Knoll, Tradition, Family, and Property. Um, I, I, I noticed in your, your comments, sir, that you mentioned that Russia was basically always on a, a war footing mentality in terms of, you didn't use that language, but it seems to me that if they are on that basis, they're constantly sending signals that they're getting ready to do something. The question is, to what extent do you think that Russia considers public opinion worldwide? In their, in their calculations? Well, I think that, first of all, Russia does not care very much about the public opinion worldwide. It cares about itself. The looking strategic point of view to regain its power as the real global player and all measures for Russia are, they think that they are possible. And uh, regarding the use of militaries, well, 2008 to year of 2008, against Georgia, now uh, Crimea and, and east of Ukraine, Kerch Strait, also the behavior in Syria. Now with Venezuela, it's, it's, it's clearly that it's, it's really about, about use of, of armed forces for the really uh, 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 so external relations, uh, so for foreign affairs, of course, issues as, 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 as the, the, the instruments. It's really about that. And looking internally, even in Russia, so that historically, even so, the Tsars of Russia and Anatolia, they always, if they had the problems internally, they they, they tried to find the external enemies, and and this is about uh, that. And this time also external enemies. So at least in, in case of Ukraine and Georgia, they were found, and that helped to boost the the the. Uh, well, the public opinion mobilized in respect of, of President Putin, and also, yeah, well, but on the other hand, yes, it's uh, Putin, uh, Russia is working also, was uh, trying to influence society, it's propaganda machine is working, and, uh, well, uh, the countries are difficult, different, societies are different, and differently understand the threats. So in Lithuania, Baltics in general, Poland and other countries, societies very much understand the, the effects of propaganda. So other countries in Europe, it seems that here in the United States also, also the understanding regarding Russian threats also the increasing. Which is which is really good, and we really need to back also to the classics to have the appropriate adequate level of resilience of the societies, of course, uh, to to counter Russian uh, threats. Thank you, well, Minister. Roger, Mr. Minister. Thank you so much thank for you. being with us today. Thank you, and please join me in thanking the minister for his remarks. Thank you very much. Thank you.
чуть-чуть. 